Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. The Apex Iron from Callaway defined a new category of player's irons. They combine the feeling and look of a forged iron with Callaway's leading distance technologies. With Apex, golfers experience an unmistakable leap in performance, and the new Apex is taking perfection even further. Callaway's 360 face cup, which makes everything better, generates industry-leading distance in the new Apex irons, and the unmatched feel will get every golfer's attention. This kind of power, distance, and control is not supposed to feel this great. Apex is in a class by itself. New tungsten weighting in each iron fine-tunes launch and trajectory throughout the set, which delivers a new level of precision in a stunning player's shape. The new Apex is the ultimate forged player's distance iron. The unmatched feel and distance, playability, and control are redefining the player's iron category. Again, once you experience an Apex, nothing else compares. This is Callaway's best for the best. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer. Or visit CallawayGolf.com and see what makes Callaway the number one iron in golf. Today's show is with a good friend of mine, Greg Harrington. Greg is the drummer for Martina McBride, is a father to two fantastic junior golfers, a lover of wine, lover of the game of golf, and in the music business. So that covers all of my prerequisites. <laughs> the trifecta. The trifecta for doing this show as we will talk about the the communitas of music, wine, and golf and how they bring people together to enjoy uh, life, make things better, and to talk about greatness, the process of greatness, and how we try to get better every day. So, Greg, thank you for coming on the show today, buddy. Thanks for having me. When did you get that feeling that you were going to be in the music business or you were going to be a drummer? What, what brought you that? What, what was that moment where you're like going, I think this is what I'm going to do? Well, I, I, probably because I had no plan. I just started playing drums, and the more I played drums um, in front of people, when I was young, they would say, like, you know, nine or ten, you should keep doing that. You're, you, you're pretty good at that. I didn't know. And so what happens is in the music business, it's if you have a demo tape and a business card, you're probably not going to get any work. Mm-hmm. You have to know people. It's, now, it's networking. Sure. So as I got older, I started playing with other musicians. And the reason I say I had no plan is because I never thought about, I'm going to go to college. I have an interest in another area. Mm-hmm. Um, I play drums, and people keep telling me I'm kind of good at it, so I'm just going to keep playing. And then eventually it would it just worked into me playing 
with a, a band or a certain artist, and then they would um, have a couple of musicians that had a bigger gig, and they'd say, hey, man, you want to come play with us? Mm. And it's and it kind of snowballs. You ended up playing with bigger acts, and you start doing a few sessions because you're playing with musicians who get opportunities, and then they kind of bring you along. And so I never... Um, I never stopped and go, okay, here's my plan. I'm going to play drums for a while and I'm going to, you know, find another opportunity where it'd be like a, something outside of music. I just kind of kept falling into good situations. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know? um, uh, musicians who were really good would pull me along and say, hey, man, there's an opportunity here to play with this artist. And I would go do it and I would meet new people. And have that opportunity happen over and over and over again until I got in a situation where I was making money yeah. and I could move away from home. And so that's kind of how it evolved. But I didn't really have a a, a, a set plan. Interesting. No backup plan <laughs> at all. No, no backup plan. <laughs> well, when, when it's funny how things work out when you don't necessarily try to control the plan. You had a – I'm sure you had this – this desire to be as good as you could be mm-hmm. and this insatiable desire to learn. And it's kind of interesting because it's not that dissimilar to my situation in the teaching golf, which was that each opportunity, I call it taking action. You took action by right. just going. Right. And that led you to more people. And then more people led you to more people, more people led you to more people. Yeah, that's the way music works, in, especially in Nashville. Yeah. And it's so it's so interesting because – it probably works that way in almost every profession because uh, everything has the ability. Like it, it's not just about being good. You have to be timely and you have to be – you feel like you could be work with a team. Yes. So people felt like they could work with you. And then it just spawns because there are so many people that are talented but you can't – they don't. you can't stand to be around them. Or there yes. are so many people that are very – they make you feel good and they're perfectly personable – but they're they're not good enough to do what you need them to do. To be able to have both is critical, and that's a that's a pretty interesting that's a pretty interesting story. When when you think about your influences in drumming, who are the people that really influenced you in your drumming and your drumming styles? Well, if you I'm going to date myself um, as far as how old I am, but w- there was a time when the in the 70s where the when the Eagles were out, mm-hmm. Don Henley was playing drums, and he had this big, fat snare drum sound, mm-hmm. you know, like hitting the side of a wall, you know, like a thud. Mm-hmm. And then right at that same time, the police were out, and Stuart Copeland had this real high-pitched snare drum. Total opposites. So drummers kind of – some drummers embraced both those styles, yeah. but a lot of drummers took off to Stuart Copeland because he was an innovator, uh-huh. you know? Real high pitch, real fast hi hats, and he was, you know, it was it was kind of busy. Yeah, uh, it wasn't like the Led Zeppelin, John Bonham, where it's like big, heavy, deep grooves. It was more um, a lot of hi hat work, uh, and the police kind of like reggae, yeah, style. Um, so, but I kind of stayed in the middle. I loved John Bonham. I love Stuart Copeland. Try to copy both. In the seventies, those were two good influences yeah for me and i think what happened um as it progressed as i started playing drums and i I graduated in 1982 
And there was a record that came out in 1983, this drummer, Steve Jordan, who is, um, he was the original drummer on the David Letterman show. Hmm. And um, he was more about groove instead of a lot of fills and being busy. Mm -hmm. And it just, everything he played felt so good. And he's gone to produce Keith Richards and... Um, he plays live with John Mayer. He's all over. Oh. He's, a, he's a New York. He's, he's a producer. He plays every instrument. That was my biggest influence. Interesting. Because it was more about. They say you know it's it's not about what you hear; it's what you don't hear. It's the space between the notes mm. that makes his song feel good, and that stuck with me. So I've always tried to play drums that way. Interesting. Like even out with Martina, I've got two toms, a snare, kick, three cymbals, just very minimal, uh-huh. and. Just focus on how the music should feel and not try to stay out of the way. So I would say my biggest influence is Steve Jordan because he played same st- size kit, all about groove. And I, I was never – appreciate Neil Peart yeah. and drummers, but I never went over to the heavy metal side yeah, or the the arena rock, hair band sure. style. I was more about keep it simple and play. Interesting. How did you uh, meet Martina McBride? Um, well, when I when I first started playing in um, Nashville, I had moved up because I was in a band that, and we we were on our second record, mm-hmm. and the record company was up here. Um, that was in the late uh, mid eighties. In the early early nineties, um, I mentioned earlier networking. Well, I was it was a Christian band. And I was playing for this artist, and they had she had an opening artist, and the guitar player uh, in that band. It was just me and him and the artist. We were the openers. Okay, so mm-hmm. I played for two bands every night, and that guitar player, Mark Oakley. Two years later, in 1996, he calls me up because we had worked together for a year, two years mm-hmm. before. He called me up and said, hey, man, he was in California in the back of the tour bus. He was whispering. He was like, <laughs> he was like, he was like, hey, Greg, Martina's fixing a fire drummer. You want to do it? I was like, who's Martina McBride? She was on her second record. I, I had no clue. Yeah. And so I said, uh, let me see who she is, and I'll call you back. And I, she was on her second record. She had a couple of number ones. Mm-hmm. I had no idea or I knew nothing about country music, but I said, I thought this is a good opportunity. Let me do it. And so, um, back to networking. Sure. I'd worked with him two years before. Um, we stayed in contact and he knew there was an opportunity coming because he was in the band and he called me. And so it was about, you know, 15 drummers and I auditioned and, and that goes back to what you said also about, it's not just talent. It's also, you know, how you interact with others. Uh, I've been with Martina for 22 years, and so I used to get to see people come and go. Mm-hmm. And, if, and for any band, I think the most important thing is your your personality. Because they'll say people and artists will keep somebody that there's no drama. You know, they have a good personality. Mm-hmm. They get along with everybody over a person that's a little bit better talent-wise. Yeah. But they come with some baggage or drama. Yeah, that's just the way that Nashville works. Yeah. So, and it's interesting because I, 
I'm a rock guy, so but I, I appreciate talent. I see your post too. You got some, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and but you know, I would imagine, you know, when you're in a band that's called Martina McBride. Well, that's that, it's, that's the artist. I, it's, yeah, I know. But what I'm saying is that. So she is. She's Michael Jordan of the band. She's. And I'm sure that she knows that she can't do it by herself, too. But at the end of the day, she's the, the voice behind the machine. What is it like in the decision-making processes when you're going through the songs? Like, if, if you're going to put out an album that has 12 songs, how many songs is she doing? How many songs are y'all doing? And then you select out how many when you pick a 12? Is he doing like to make a record? Songs? Yeah, to make a record. Well, I'm not. I'm not a part of that process. Oh, okay. At all. Um, that's totally up to the artist and the record company. I'm not sure if management is involved at all in that process, but it's mainly record company. Hmm. It's interesting how that works. Um, I'm trying to explain it the right way. Um, Martina, years ago in her prime. Not that I mean, you know what I mean. When she yeah. was early, when she was younger in her twenties, and it's just like on her second or third record, and she's spitting out number ones. Okay, a songwriter wants her to cut that song because he goes, "Okay, if I if she cuts this song, there's a good chance it's going to be a number one." Same thing with with any artist when they're younger and they're hitting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Strait, um, Garth Brooks, or you know Kenny Chesney when they're sure. any artist. When they're putting out number ones, the songwriter wants that for that artist to hear their song and praying that they'll pick that song. Sure. So, and as an artist, um, if they're, and this is not just Martina, any artist, if they go through a, a period where they're not putting out number one singles, um, which happens with everybody, there's songs still sitting there that are great songs, but the artist that's producing or putting out number ones usually will get first dibs on the best song. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a Miranda Lambert might get first pick over a, a new artist that's coming out because that songwriter goes, hey, she's putting out a lot of hits. Yeah. You know, because it's all about money, too. Sure it is. You know? Yeah. So it's 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 interesting because an artist will say, "I love these sixteen songs," and they may cut sixteen songs, but they may have, may have picked way more than that. But they can't cut them because somebody else has got uh, dibs on them. Interesting, you know. And is it? Would you say that it's it's just based around history and how it's always been done, or is it a personal choice in country music? But like, I'm a Pearl Jam fan. So Eddie Vedder writes most of the songs for Pearl yeah. Jam. And, and if he doesn't write it, Stone Gossard or McCready and Amen write it. Right. So they're not they're not using other songwriters. They might cover a song here or cover a song there that ends up on an album somewhere, but they write their own songs. Why is it that country music, the, the most of the artists don't write their own songs? There, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's very few artists that write like their whole record. Yeah. You know, um, you would find it more common in a, in a band that spend, they spend time together mm-hmm. and they create together and they write their stuff together. Um, but a solo artist is 
it's it's kind of the, the whole machine how Nashville works. I'm not sure. Hmm. I think some artists. I don't know what percentage. Um, like say any particular artist. Um, I know Martina started has, has started to write more. Uh, a few records ago, she had written some, and she even produced the, her co-produced the entire record. Sure. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it's it's a machine of songwriters are over here on on the left side, mm-hmm. and they write and they have a publish they you know have their publishing company, and so it's there for whoever wants to cut it, and yeah. the artist comes in and they go pick songs. Back in the back in the days, there used to be song pluggers. I don't even know if they st- if there's huh. maybe there still is song plug. I don't know. I'm not as plugged in. Sure, that's not a pun, but uh, not as plugged in as I as I was a, f- a few years ago as far as the songwriting part of it. Interesting. But there would be guys that was their job. They're huh. pitching. They're going to record companies, representing publishing companies, and they're plugging these songs. Hey, I got this song. Got this song. Interesting. Pitching it to different artists, but um, um, if I had to answer that question. And this is just my opinion. I think songwriters in Nashville are very good, mm-hmm. and that's what they do. And I think artists have other commitments, performance, yeah. meetings. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot on their plate. Um, and if they can, if they can write a song, um. Some of some of the artists are, and I'm speaking generally here. I yeah. think I think some of the artists are are very talented songwriters. And if you so, if you can get an artist that's just naturally picks up guitar and writes great songs, mm-hmm. it's it's good for them, especially today's music because um, most of the money now, with, because you're not actually going to a record store to buy a CD. Mm-hmm. If you can write the song, that's where you're going to make some money. Got it. So I'm not sure if there's a trend towards artists writing more of their own songs, but it's financially, it's better if they do. Yeah. I just found it. I've always wondered why, you know, all my favorite bands, if you look at, if I can remember all the way back, it was, it started basically Guns N' Roses, then Pearl Jam, Mm -hmm. then Tool. And then as I get older, I don't, I'm not as angry as I used to be. So it's Coldplay, (laughs) you know, you're mellow. So, but that you look at their song list and it's, Vetter, 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 amen, vetter. You know, and then when you go look at Kenny Chesney, David Lee Murphy, Kenny Chesney, David Lee Murphy, you know, Neil Thrasher. There's no, and there's all these great hits, and he hasn't written that many of them. And I'm like, that is so strange that I just wondered if it's just like the way things are done in Nashville, or if it's, if it's a rock and roll thing versus a country thing, I just didn't know. Because I know that Vetter comes here mm-hmm. to work with people. So yeah. does Steven Tyler comes here. He lives yeah. here now. You know, the rock and roll guys come here to kind of bounce some ideas off the brilliance that Nashville has in the song, yeah. in the music industry, period. Well, you can get your name on a song. The artist can get their name on a song. Yeah. The songwriter comes up and says, okay, I got the song. And the artist may go, well, let's change this line or let's move this here yeah some minimal input and now it says you know john smith kenny chesney yeah it may be a minimal change but they're on it they may be getting 20 percent of the song sure but it doesn't tell you the breakdown of the of the songwriter credits <laughs> on the album credits it just says two writers yeah so true that you is know. that's awesome I, I i knew this producer i won't name names but i knew this producer and uh 
they play a song and he it would just be a simple little well let's um what if it was like a double chorus and if the bridge was four bars and may and the the third bar of the four bar bridge make that a c and he would like before you knew he had like 20 percent of the song and he would do that and, and you know it was, it was crazy but <laughs> not writing any lyrics, no nothing, just some arrangement changes. So that's interesting. <sighs> got to get yours, and I got to get mine. You know, yeah. but uh, but I'll, all that to say, there's 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 so many great songwriters, so many quality songs. Sometimes it's hard oh. um, for an artist not to at least look at all the options out there because there's a lot of great songs. Oh, and in that. the end, it's about a great song getting on the radio. Yeah. And, you know, you're trying to get a number one and, you know, that's, that's how the machine works. You get number ones and before you know it, you're selling out stadiums and you're making money and that's right. So what was it like in in the dream world? I mean, I'm I'm an athlete. Okay. But I've always, I've always gravitated toward that feeling of what is it like to be on stage and be in front of 10, 12, 15,000 people and people are just, they're just singing it right back to you. When, when Martina was at her peak and it was so magnificent. What was that feeling like when you walked on stage and people are just going crazy because you, they're getting ready to watch a great show. The Martina McBride's going to put on. What, what was that like? I've done it. You know, I've done it for so long. Um, it's still incredible. Like you, it's just, you can't explain the feeling that you have when the, when the people are great and there's, they know the lyrics and they're singing, you yeah. know, um, Martina, I mean, you, you can and you can tell when it's a great night. You know, the crowds uh-huh. there. You know, every once in a while, you get somebody like that was like they're they're there, and they are not. They don't really want to be there. Like they might be there with their aunt or yeah. wife or something, mm-hmm. and they sit with their arms crossed the entire show, and they're dead center front seat. Looking. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you should be in the very back of the arena. But but for the most part, yeah, it's it's a great feeling. It, and to, to see I'm playing drums, they're clapping to something I'm playing, and then they're singing along to every word that Martina is singing. Yeah. And when the crowd's on, it definitely makes our night easier and better. And Martinez always tells the audience on the last song, she goes, and believe it or not, we talk about you on the bus ride to the next gig. And we do. We'll talk about how great a crowd it was or that nah, well, eh, mm-hmm. that's okay. But yeah, when they're, when they're into it, it's, it makes your night better. It gives you more energy. Yeah. You know, you're like, okay, let's do it. Let's do it. That's so cool. Cause it's kind of like, for me, it's when I'm, there's a difference between playing a golf course you've played a hundred times. And you hop in a plane, and then you you land four hours later, and you get in the car, and you drive three more hours later, and you get out, and it's like majestic, and yeah. it's seventy one, yeah. and a little wind, and it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's so, and that's why you play the game, you know. It's yeah. what, and it's so like it's it's always fascinating to me what that feeling has to be like when it comes to encores. Another question I've always wondered. Do you already know what you're going to do? Or when does the artist decide to make a second encore? Is it just because that's what they feel? Or is it, how do you, what's the encore plan? Our encores are, our encores are pretty quick. Like sometimes I don't even have a chance to get off stage and I'm already back up there. <laughs> but 
uh, it's just the way she's Martina's always done it. Um, yeah, they're and some other artists let them clap for fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as songs, it's it's written, and sometimes it says "We'll call." So we don't know. Yeah, and which is hard for me as a drummer because I have like a um, I have to start every song, and I've got like this three tiered keyboard to the right of me that has about 50 songs on it that I just hit a button and it starts the click track that we all hear in our ears. Oh, uh, okay? okay. So, and so like for a set list, I would have to go at uh, 15 minutes for the show. I'll take the set list in my hand. I'll look at the keyboard and I'll go like, you know, they're, they're, they're stat like one, two, three and they're black keys and white keys. So I'll, I'll have to look at the song. Okay. Keyboard one left, like I know, so it isolates where I've got to look to start the song. Sure, but when she when when it says encore will call, I'm going crap, man. This could be anywhere on this keyboard, <laughs> you know, because I got I can't just go. So now some of them are live. I just count them off, but um, we usually know between six or seven songs what it's going to be. Got it. You know, so I got an idea, mm-hmm. but I I kind of like that when I don't know what's coming. And she calls it off, and I got and I got like three seconds to go. Yeah, it's, okay, it goes like this. Okay, one, kind of, two, three. It's just a different kind of energy. <laughs> it's a different energy. The unknown. Yeah, the unknown is so so powerful. And the crowd, you know, the crowd makes everything better. When the crowd is kind of suspect as far as energy level and, um, or let's say it's a private corporate event not everybody paid to be there mm-hmm. they're just they're part of a corporation and it's a private thing it's a little different sometimes sometimes you get a private crowd that's incredible so you can if you've played a song for 20 years mm-hmm. I'll and Martina already knows this we all do it we kind of if the crowd's not that strong natural tendencies just kind of drift off you're something like thinking about Let's see. I need to when I get home. See, Jack's got a tournament in a couple of days while I'm playing drums. Yeah, because it's so you've done it so much. It's muscle memory, and yeah, you know, got to cut the grass tomorrow. But if the crowd's into it, and there, you don't think about any of that stuff. Yeah, you're, you're in the moment. You're in the moment. You're in the moment. So that is so interesting. Love that because I've always it always fascinates me. Once again, just from what I've seen, you know. A couple of my favorite bands are huge, like multiple encore bands, and like, and you never know if you're going to get the second one or not. And then just when you think that the, okay, the second one's done, and then Pro Jam goes out and plays a third encore. Yeah, uh, like I've seen them twice where they came out and do their their normal end, right? And then like the lights don't come on, and you're like, mm, maybe we're going to get a second one. Yeah. You wait it out, wait it out, but when they come back out again, yeah. they play three more songs, and you're like, now it's definitely over. And then five and minutes later, not. they come back out and they play like a Neil Young song and just tear the roof off. Of yeah. I'm like, but I just didn't know if it was a, a script or if it's just something that the artists feel like. Oh, we're going back out one more time. You feel it, yeah, yeah, yeah. If if um, if the crowd is well, sometimes like um, we played the other night at the Austin Rodeo, mm-hmm. and it's. It, you will do like maybe two or three. Most country artists will do a couple of rodeos, like the San Antonio Rodeo, the Houston, Austin, all that stuff. It's kind of standard for a country artist to play those. Yeah. 
and it's in the round. They push the stage out. It's in the round. It kind of turns. You know, you're like on a you're like on a giant lazy Susan. <laughs> you are. You're barely moving. You're on dirt. You kind of smell manure. A lot of it. Rodeo clowns have dispersed. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, uh, but we usually don't do an encore on those songs because. With every rodeo show, she will the artist will get into a pickup truck. It's kind of crazy. It's really oh, crazy wow. how they do it. Walks off stage into a truck. The truck drives around the arena. She waves to everybody as we play a very long playoff, and then she disappears backstage. And then we end it. That's it. Never an encore. Oh, okay. On a, in a rodeo, but other all other shows, it just depends. Um, a, a private show with the curfew. Like we got to be done at eleven, no encore. Uh, but usually we'll do two or three songs, and if it's the if they're really great, we'll go back off and Martin will go. They want more. Let's wait a minute. Okay, go. Yeah, and she'll just tell us, you know, what song we're gonna play. That's awesome. So, tell us real quick how uh, how great is it to be with Martina? How how awesome of a boss so to speak how 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 great of a person is martina mcbride she is incredible there's we're fortunate there's no drama in our organization you know Mm -hmm. every i think the the band members all of them well there's two new guys that have been there four years but the core band uh myself uh jim medlin on piano greg forsman on guitar glenn snow on bass we've been there all 20 plus years and martina's great she takes good care of us. There's no drama. Uh, when we have off days, she takes us out to eat. We go to cool places. She makes the traveling great. Very family-oriented. She understands um, about family yeah. and being away from home. And she's just incredible to work for. And there's she has no drama. I mean, she's the yeah. real deal. That's awesome. Yeah, she's great. When you... Uh we we both share the love of good red wine and there's just something about red wine and, and just getting together with with the guys or the girls so to mm-hmm. speak when did you get turned on to uh the wine and the wine experience that comes with almost everywhere you go and at dinner or just being with a group of people well we being out with Martina she would always go to if we were out in California, she would go to – if we were anywhere near Napa, she would go to Napa. And I don't know when – I don't know what year it was, but she kept – every time she'd go, Greg, you want to go up to Napa? Nah, I don't like wine. And um, it was probably 12 years ago, somewhere around there. I said, okay, I'll go. And I started, like, baby steps. I got, like, this – I went to Peju Winery off the main highway in Napa. Mm-hmm. And it was like this blend of like red and white, which I I can't imagine drinking now. But uh, I said, man, that's, that's pretty good. And so we would, and then that's how I, I got my exposure or my first experience in Napa is we would, anytime we did a West Coast run, we would take the tour bus to Napa. And then I just loved it, and I would write down every winery. Okay, this was I like this one, and I would just keep a list. Mm-hmm. And then I've got like the PDF Napa winery map on my computer <laughs> because I get people asking me now, yeah, 
what's your favorite winery? And I'll cl- double click it, pull it up and go, okay, you got to try this, 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 you know, make a day out of it. But that's how I started. I finally said, okay, Martina, yes, I will go to Napa. And she would take us all to these different wineries. And I started really okay. loving it. And I'm still just a California. I don't, I, I, I don't know anything about French wine, Italian yeah. wine, really. Interesting. I'm just a California yeah. red guy. Interesting. When you, uh, when you've gone to Napa, what's like one of the memorable wine experiences, like wineries or tours or something that you did that was like really like glued in the love of of wine and the experience of it? Well, I like going to wineries that are like off the beaten path, like Silverado Trail, up on Howl Mountain. Yeah. You know, I've, we've done tastings. My wife and I have done tastings where we just go into the winemaker's house. Oh wow! Yeah, <clears throat> and it's really cool. Um, but I there's there's several outposts um, up on Howl Mountain. You can sit in these Anirondack chairs and look over the entire entire valley floor. You know, um, but I think what really connected me to the entire valley, the Napa Valley, was at, at Camus. We did. Martina took us to Camus. And uh, Chet Wagner is the owner. Yeah. And he loaded up this flatbed truck. He put a bunch of picnic tables on a flatbed truck and put Martina, the band, the crew, my family was in town, put the kids on it, my wife, and we drove through the vineyards. Oh, wow. How awesome was that? And he got, and he's, Chuck is, you know, knows. It's incredible. You've had Camus. Oh, yeah. I love Camus. So, but he got out in his blue jeans and his little flannel shirt, and he starts digging. We're sitting there drinking his wine, and he's digging in the dirt. Going, okay, we graft the wine. We graft the vine here. This is how it grows. This is when we water. This is when we don't water. He went through the whole process, and that's when I started getting hooked. Okay, this is how it works. And if you put these same vines two miles from here on that hillside, they're going to taste totally different than if they're on over here. So the more tastings, that's how I started really, okay, I'm going to try a Zinfandel now like uh-huh. because up in Calistoga it's supposed to be warmer and better. So then I would, it wasn't just about, I would like a Cabernet. It was like, where is this Cabernet grown? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It starts getting more complex as you go. Oh yeah, you know, man. How about that? That's a, that's like Ben Hogan grabbing a hold of you, grabbing a hold of me. Said, "Now, when you when you put your grips on, yeah, you do it like. I mean, it's like that's just not like a a, a regular pro telling you. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a legend in winemaking, let alone Napa Valley. That yeah. is a." That's amazing. Well, before you know, before that, it was just let's go to a winery that has a tasting room, and we'll go sit at the bar and we'll drink wine. And that was my first experience to go, oh, there's actual dirt and vines, and this is how it's done. This yeah. is the process. And then we would go and see the big, you know, and where they keep all the the barrels and everything. Mm-hmm. So, but so, yeah, that's it's really cool when you get to walk through the vines yeah and at the end drink the wine you know yeah and he would say okay these these rows right here will be harvested and whatever you know 
in two years. So interesting. What's the greatest wine you've ever had? Greatest wine. My favorite wine is Hundred Acre. Yeah, that's the best wine I think I've had. That is outstanding. I had an old Hickory Steakhouse, and I've got two bottles that are pushing ten years old, just sitting there. I can't bring myself to open. It's got to be a special, special occasion. That's the thing about wine. You know, you have something that's so majestic, and you weren't really prepared for it when you had it the first time. Yeah. And then you buy some, and you're like, well, now, well, now when am I going to use it? Yeah. Because now I know how good it is. Yeah. Oh, when you're, doing wine t- when you're doing wine tastings like in Napa, the first <laughs> wine is always the best. Yeah. It could be a, t- a $10 bottle of wine. Man, this is killer. Give me a case. <laughs> if you do that same one at the end, you're like, man, this is crap. No doubt about you know, it. No, the yep. first one's the best one. Well, you have a unique experience because I know that you you love golf and you love the game, but you have two kids that love the game, and you get now you're you live the life that I live, except I lived it a lot longer because I travel around all the time. But you got your kids, but when you think about the the journey of a golf parent. And what it is that you experience, like, because I think being a golf parent might be the hardest sport of them all, because oh it takes gosh. so long. You know, it's a four-hour, five-hour, six-hour day. We did six <laughs> hours this past weekend. Yeah, and it's only awesome when it's awesome, because when it's not awesome, especially if it starts off bad, whew, it's a long but tan death march. It is. Of, I've experienced both. Yeah, and. When when you think about the journeys that you've taken with Gracie and Jack, and I'm, I would imagine that every single one, you, you, after a while you realize you can't have any expectation because you have no idea what's getting ready to happen. True. Um, what is it that you re- recall the most in all of your travels that was like the most unexpected great joy that you experienced while being a golf dad? Wow, that's a tough question. Unexpected great joy. Mm-hmm. Like you, you go into an event and one of the two, you know, either weren't playing good when you went in or playing in a field that was, you know, very, very deep. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, boom, they, they play so good. They rise to a level that they've never risen before. And it captures everybody's imagination and heart because it was like, all that time that you spend practicing at chipping and putting mm-hmm. and that that doesn't happen and it doesn't happen. Daddy, when's it ever going to happen? Am I ever going <laughs> to play good? And then maybe in a moment where you just don't even think that it's going to be there. Right. Boom. I remember, I remember that moment. Um, and for, I'll speak for Jack and Grace separately. For Jack, it was a, uh, several years ago because he's, he's still 12. He'll mm-hmm. be 13 this month. Um, he was, I don't know, eight years old or something like that, maybe a little older. And he was playing, I think it was a, it was a SNEDS event. And back then we'd only did like, we would do like two a year mm-hmm. just to kind of see, um, a, f- a few months before that he had played a little, um, little junior event at the little course here in Franklin. And, uh, and he went out and he shot like a 50 at the little course. Par is what? 29. 29, I think. 27. 
Nine yeah, it is 27, 27. Yeah, so 27. You, we had the ball out of bounds. The ball was going everywhere. And and I remember talking to my wife and go, I just – I don't know if he's going to do it, if it, if he's going to be – if he's going to find it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what we're doing here. I'm not sure if this is right for him. You know, that moment where you're yeah. going, I'm not sure what's going on. The ball's <laughs> everywhere. I don't know what to tell him. I'm not a golf coach. I'm just a dad going, it's uh, okay, buddy. Yeah. And then – so then we go, he does the Sneds event. But it's probably a year after that. And he's playing and he puts up a high number. And it was a nine hole event, probably it was probably somewhere around fifty, but it was a par thirty six, mm-hmm. you know. Um and so I think it was at Riverside Golf Course in Nashville. So he finishes and I didn't say anything to him. And he and he walked over to his bag and grabbed his putter, and then he walked to the leaderboard and just stared at it. It was outside. He just stared at it, and the kids kept coming in. They kept putting their their numbers in, right, and their scores, and he kept falling further and further down the leaderboard. And he looked at me and goes, that's not going to happen again. And he went over and putted for like 30 minutes, you know. So then um, I, think, I think it was that was his last Neds event of the year, and then the next year – he went and played a um, event at Smyrna mm-hmm. Golf Course um, in the micro division, and he had put a lot of work in. And we had like one hole left, and my wife texts me. She goes, "What's Jack at?" I said, I, "I think he's like four over or something." She goes, "The leader in the clubhouse is six over." Just you know, I'm not sure what she said after that, but she was giving me like the update. And I, and I calmly, as my heart was racing, going, he could win his first tournament. It's not like a little baby, little mm-hmm. horse tournament. I didn't say anything to him. And he ended up winning the tournament. And that was it. And he put that little medal on it. But, it, you know, that was when he went from – so in about a year and a half or so, he went from shooting a 50 at a little par three course to winning his first event. Oh, yeah. And that was – that kind of propelled him. He had an incredible year. And, and then we and then it slowly after that was just kind of working – Um. And then he, you know, just kind of, like, which is ongoing. We're still working. Yeah, that's right. You're working with him today. That's right. <laughs> it never stops. That's right. Never stops. And um, for Gracie, um, she had worked her way up. And, and Jack, actually, Jack and Grace won it the same year. It was, I think it was 2016. They both won the Tennessee Championship for SNEDs, the, the Aspen Grove Challenge. Mm-hmm. They won it the same year. Uh, at the little course and Gracie had worked really hard and it was a big field and she had won individual U.S. kids golf and SNEDS tournaments yeah but this is a big field big stage and she played her butt off and she held the trophy and then we got them in the car and they both had their big you know big jug trophies crystal trophies and they're and I had them on camera, and they're going, we're state champions, you know. That's and awesome. And she st- still remembers that, you know. And so when you, when you have that, uh, your child is struggles a little bit. Like you said, you don't know when it's going to turn around. And if it turns around, are they going to go back down and come back up? Because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Like you always tell me, it's a journey. Yep. You know, you know if they're going to stay on top, they're gonna, when they're going to dip, growth spurts, their yep. body changes. So, but those are those are the two I can remember. <laughs> That's so fun. Oh, it's so the game of golf is so fascinating. 
because much like life, as soon as you start to put an, an expectation value on the outcome of whatever it is, it never seems to pan out. But when you stay in the moment, as you talked about earlier when you're at a, in the live show, mm-hmm. if you can stay in the moment, everything turns out all right. Yeah. But it's when you get ahead. It's like you either get ahead of yourself or you spend too much time looking in the rearview mirror, you know, thinking back. And to be able to stay present is super valuable in, in all aspects of life. It is. And when, you know, they're both so talented, Gracie and Jack. And, like, after they win, they think they might win tomorrow, too. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get them to remember when you wake up tomorrow – you got to start all over again. Yeah. And yesterday's success has very little to do with today's outcome. You can ride you can ride some confidence, you can you can build the momentum, but you're really building off of a process. You're not building off a result. Right. And that's hard to teach a a, a kid because they glorify what they see on TV. Tiger's greatness, Rory's greatness, Jordan's greatness, Annika's greatness, all these great players. They just get, you, you, they watch how great they play for four holes, hold the trophy, answer the question, wow, that's got to be awesome. But it's the process that got them there. And that's what I try to instill in all of my players is yes, it's fun to win. Right? That's why we're here. Right. But it's it's more about the process because it's, it's how you fight against emotion that that interferes with your decision making process in a because golf is such a long event it is yeah so, you know so you have 5 hours in junior golf world maybe 6 hours of time to to change your mind about what you want to do <laughs> or how you want to do it and how your emotions can play into the next decision that did not go exactly as you scripted it the night before. Like, I'm going to hit driver. No, I'm going to hit three wood off hole five today. And now you're four over through four, and you're driving driver. Yeah. And, you know, that's what kids do that the best players in the world don't do. And that's what I try to tell them. I let them fail. I let them struggle so that they, they don't hear it from me. They experience the pain of... Letting emotion interfere with a really good sound game plan that's best for them. Right. Until they, like, okay, I'm not going to, to let that happen again. And also point out when they do succeed, how they fought off an emotional charge. Right. For whatever reason. Just like for whatever reason they chose to right. buy into it and help them understand it's just a decision. Yeah. And when you make those decisions and you generally always base them off the highest percentage chance, you might not always win, but it gives you the best chance to win all the time. And that's what you're actually doing. So don't make a decision that is ruining all of your hard work to yeah. get there. I agree. <clears throat> and that's uh, easier said than done. But at the end of the day, I like to watch the kids struggle, and I like to watch them not succeed, and yet show them how many things that they did succeed at and build 
on it because it's the grit and the the fight that they build. Like Jack realizing, hmm, that's not going to happen again. Yeah. He didn't do that because he won. He did it because he he did that because he didn't do well, and other people, he, every every minute his name fell down that leaderboard, and it set a fire in him. Yeah. And that's what we're always looking for is what sets something ablaze in their heart, that passion yeah. that gets it going. And you know what it is now? It's, is there, there's, he always has a good tournament switch, mm-hmm. but when he plays against the older boys – because it's he's, it's a it's a big challenge. Yeah, you know, and and, and as for it, you were talking about results, and I, this past tournament was the first time, and it was just a disappointing end to the tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, he had it going pretty good, um, played it very well in very difficult conditions. I think it was like forty degrees and twenty mile an hour gust and six hour round. They did three groups, a uh, hundred forty two player. 10 a.m. shotgun start, three groups off each tee. Oh, that's a brilliant idea. It's a great idea. None. So, anyway. <laughs> but after we had discussed briefly what had happened at the end of the round and we got that out of our system and, you know, the, the heat of the moment stuff. Yeah. Then I, t- that, and then I told him, because then it was, that was the first time we're, well, not the first time, but it was definitely not about results. Yeah. I, was, I, saw, I said, man, I'm seeing you do some stuff on the golf course. That is going to take you far. I'm seeing you hit low, sh- low knockdown shots. I'm seeing you pull a club out of your bag, range that, check the wind, and go. That's not going to work. Put the club back. Get a different club. And you're thinking your way around the golf course. So I think, is even though you lost the tournament, what you're doing out there is going to benefit you. So just keep doing that. Yeah. You know. Well, m- most of this show is predicated around golf because, well, that's what I do. Yeah. But talk to us real quick about the process that it takes to be a great drummer and how it mirrors what it takes to be great at anything. But it, it, I think it has a lot to do with golf. Like every day you get your work in. I don't, I th- don't know that many people understand what a musician does when they're not in the concert. What, like, give us a, a daily understanding of Greg Harrington's routine to stay one of the greatest drummers in the world and not take it. Not that you'd ever take it for granted, but like, how do you stay on top once you're there? Well, I, you know what I do is I like, you know, when you play um, a tournament, it's good to have like some downtime yeah. and then you kind of ramp up to a tournament. I've always treated it the same way. If we've played a lot of shows, I'll take some time off and then we got shows coming up. You ramp back up and, um, I've always tried to play things that were not comfortable. You know, like, I can't figure this out. Let me try to play that. Just to spend a little bit of time yeah. doing that and uh, just doing basic, you know, coordination stuff a little bit um, just to keep me fresh, you know. And the whole pro- the whole thing about drums is, too, is if you – if you you want to get excited, go to the drum shop. Check out the newest gear, just like with golfers do. Yeah. Check out the Flash and all that yeah. stuff. With it, they they have so many like new symbols are coming out, all that stuff. So that it keeps it exciting. But as far as practice, I've always just put on a record and found something that's a little bit out of my comfort zone and tried to until it was comfortable. Yeah, you know, 
uh, whether it be my favorite drummer or just something that I just, I said, man, I can't pull this off and do it. And then um, as far as working up to a tour, there's a tour coming up. That's the best way to to really get some quality work in because, like, we did a Christmas tour mm-hmm. um, last year. And it was like big band, Frank Sinatra style stuff. It was a lot of pushes. It was swinging. Oh, wow. And I really, really had to work on it. And some people may not know that I mean, the drummer needs to, the drummer needs to be when they show up at rehearsals for a tour, they need to be ready. They don't. They can't be going. What does it do there? What's the when's the course coming up? They need to have all their stuff together, so everything else can come together. Yeah, because you're the foundation. So that's what I like to do the best is like ramp up for a tour or Martina's got a new record coming up mm-hmm. and she'll, and we'll get the drum. I'll get the files with the, like the drum mix hot, like an individual mix, every song, but it's got drums hot. Mm-hmm. And so it allows you to hear all the drum parts and to, uh, to practice those. So, and it's the same thing. Yeah. It's, it's not out of my comfort zone. But you kind of you have to learn it note by note. You have to just go, okay, I've got the four bar intro now. Let me do it again. Okay, now let me learn the verse. Okay, now let me do intro verse. Got it. Then you do you get the intro verse down now. Okay, intro verse chorus. Okay, let me go back to the beginning. It's like repeat, repeat, repeat until you get it down. And you have like your headset on. You're listening to it yeah. in your ear. Yeah. And you're you're basing it off of all all of your experience of what you feel is going on in in your head. When you're trying to match it up between what's on, like coming out hot in your headset versus, well, like, like I'll, I'll take a, I'll, I'll make my own chart, yeah. drum chart. Like I'll hear the hot mix. When I say hot, it just means it's the it's the song, but the drums are mixed up heavy. Yeah. Um, so what I'll do is, I'll just take a sheet of paper and I'll first do structure, you know, intro, verse, chorus, turn, yeah. all that stuff, and then, then I'll go, listen to it again, and now I'm writing down. What is the kick drum doing? And I'll notate it mm-hmm. all the way through the song. What is a snare on two and four, which usually it is. Yeah. And I'll just put two, four, snare, all. And then um, then when you get through that, then you notate drum fills. Okay, at the end of the verse, he goes, he does this drum fill, you notate it. Then when you have your roadmap, yeah. then you go back and listen to the song and start at the intro. And do I know the intro? Have I memorized the intro? And once you can check that box off, then you okay. Let me go to the verse, and you so you learn each section yeah. at a time, but you have to map it out first, so you're not just flailing away and yeah. going, "Yeah, it sounds good to me." Yeah. So that's that, the process. That's the process of of learning, like in Martina world. That's that's my process. Yeah. Because if I played on the song or not, she wants it like the record. Yeah. Unless it's a cover song. Sure. So you have to go and what does this drum fill do exactly? Interesting. So that's my process. Yeah. But uh, but as far as it's just loose practice, I like, you know, like I said, trying to learn things that are a little bit out of my comfort zone and working on that. Interesting. All right, here we end up on our favorites. Your favorite golf course you've ever played? Mm, Pebble Beach. Pebble Beach. Your favorite movie? Oh man, I always you know, I always love Sling Blade. Remember that movie? <laughs> Sling That's Blade. pretty dark. 
Wow. But nice. I don't know. I don't think it's my favorite anymore. Um, pass. I have to think, have about, to think about that one. Um, yeah, I need some time on that one. All right. We'll have to edit that one. All right. How about uh, the favorite concert you've been to? Coldplay. Coldplay. Yeah, it was a Coldplay show. Where at? It was at the old Starwood Amphitheater. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was that, what What album was that? Was that the first one? No, I think it was the, it was the record after. Russia uh, Blood to the Head, is that what that was? I think it was that record, or, or um, XYZ. Oh. Right in that oh, era. Oh, yeah. Before they started getting real pop. Yeah, because I, I saw them at the Ryman the night that Russia Blood came out. Oh, that's one of about four shows that made me cry. It was so perfect. It was absolutely jaw-dropping. Yeah. Oh, so I, know. I, lo- I, st- I mean, I know some. it can be kind of soft. Rock, but I just I just love I always loved them. Radiohead, too. Yeah. You know. Okay. Your favorite show that you played in. What's, a, what's the most memorable show that you played in? Memorable show? Um Probably Carnegie Hall. Oh, wow. I bet that was awesome. Just because you know what you're walking into. Yeah. It, the di- the acoustics are so incredible. Like, I was playing a drum kit. It was what it was. It was the Opry was at Carnegie Hall. Uh-huh. So we had a multitude of artists. And, um, I mean, if I played with a pair of sticks and played normal volume, it would have eat up the entire room. And it would have drowned out. Every, that's how live the room is. Wow. So I had to play with like these little blast sticks and play soft. But it was I was I was sitting there going, I'm in Carnegie Hall, playing drums. It was it was surreal. It was crazy. That was and I, and that, the gore. I like playing the gorge in Washington because yeah. you have a cliff behind you, like a canyon. Yeah, like 20 feet from the drums. If I look backwards, it it's like a mile wide canyon. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You ever played Red Rocks? Nope. But but here's another thing about the gorge. When you finish uh-huh. the gorge, you do the concert while the crew's loading out, and they've got music playing. You walk to the top of the hill. There's a trout pond, and it'd be like eleven o'clock at night. We'd sit there on the banks, the band guys, in the middle of Washington, catching trout huh. while they load out. That is so I love, awesome. I love those little memories like that. <laughs> That's so good, Greg. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on my show and talk about all things that are music. Wine, golf, and the process of greatness. I appreciate it, buddy. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. All right. That was awesome. I got to say, this is a stroke of genius. The new Stroke Lab putters from Odyssey are engineered to build a better stroke. Odyssey completely rebalanced the putter by using a multi-material shaft that moved the weight towards the head and the grip. You'll feel the difference immediately. And with every putt, you'll actually be building a better stroke. And a better stroke is what makes more putts. The new Stroke Lab from Odyssey, the number one putter in golf. Available in stores February 8th. Learn more at odysseygolf.com.